So as Cal said, my name is Misha, um, and I'm part of the family here at Herald. Um, if I haven't had time to meet you, good morning. Um, and I've got the privilege to talk this morning. Um, but before we kick off, um, what I would love to do is if you could turn to the person next to you, if there is someone, if not, find someone near you. <laughs> um, and I would love you to discuss who is your favorite person of faith. So it could be somebody from the Old Testament, the New Testament. It could be somebody like Mother Teresa. It could be a real-life example. Anybody that you know who's got a great story, either they massive change happened or they've got a great story of faith. Um, I'll give you 45 seconds each. Um, go. Um, I'm so interested to hear who you all said was your favorite. Um, I'll, I'll let you into mine. I'm going to be cheeky um, and break all the rules because it was my question. So I'm going to take three. Um, I know, outrageous. Um, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego um, off of the, the Old Testament. And I'm not sure what it was about them um, or their story. It could be the cool names. Um, maybe it was the whole fire thing. Um, I also seem to remember there was a particularly good VeggieTales series um, episode about them. <laughs> um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you should check out the story. It's a good one. Um, I always wanted to have a faith like theirs, um, a huge faith of like standing in a furnace, standing in the fire, um, and being okay with whether I lived or died, because either way, it meant being closer to God. They were absolute legends. And I think when I, when I read the story, I assumed that that kind of faith that they showed in that moment of being in the fire was the sort of faith that came on you one day. It was like a switch that flicked and it would change everything. And I would wake up one day and I would just know. I'd know that the switch had been flicked overnight and I'd have this crazy faith that would allow me to kind of dance in the furnace like they did or face lions in the lion's den or whatever the great personal faith did that you chose. <laughs> Um, but unfortunately, I'm kind of still waiting for that day. I don't know about you. <laughs> um, but I think I'm in good company. Because as I look around to a lot of amazing leaders and people of faith all around the world, I realize I think they're probably waiting for their, their, their day as well. And mainly what they're doing is really small things. They're taking small steps in obedience of faith for a really long time. And they might have some brilliant moments along the way, like standing in the furnace or being in the lion's den, um, but mainly they're just taking the step in front of them. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the habits of grace and the small steps of faith along the journey that help us get there. There you go. Here we go. It's my lovely slide. <laughs> um, so to do that, we're going to read Romans 6, 15 to 23. There are some Bibles floating around. You might want to find it on your phone. If not, it should come up behind me as well. So the passage is titled, Slaves to Righteousness. So I'm going to start reading on verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity 
and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. But what benefit did you reap at the time for the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whew, great. Amen. <laughs> that was a lot. Um, so there's quite a lot in that passage, and it's a lot about kind of being slaves to death or being slaves to God. Um, and the bit that I just want to read again um, is verse 19. So I'm just just read that bit. Um, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so you offer, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. Now, when I read this, I found it a little bit annoying that Paul used the example of slavery, and he makes it a point about, like, oh, from everyday life. <laughs> um, it's not really part of our everyday life anymore. It was, would have been a lot more relatable to the original audience. Um, slavery was a part of their world in a much more obvious way than it is in ours now. But I think we are all aware that to be a slave is to have a master, and it's to obey their orders. So I think it goes without saying that it makes a big difference who the master is. It determines everything for the slave. It determines your actions, it determines your future, and it determines everything in between. And so Paul is saying here, over and over again in this passage, that there are two directions that we can go in. Either being obedient to sin, which he makes clear leads to death, or to God, which leads to eternal life. And he, re- he goes on to really highlight that a Christian life isn't just about deliverance from the punishment of sin, but it's also a change in master. So it's a change of direction through the grace of God. So in verse 22 it says, But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, you reap, uh, you, the, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ our Lord, sorry. <laughs> um, so, so it's clear that it's been by being set free through love and grace by Jesus that we're in a position to be on a path of eternal life. But what has this got to do with the habits of grace, I hear you ask? <laughs> well, in other translations, rather than where it says, offer yourselves, in the version that I read, it says, present yourselves. And the word used in the original text um, it, it's in the present and the continuous tense, which, which translates more directly to continue presenting yourselves or continue offering yourselves as slaves of righteousness to God. And that signifies habitual and ongoing action over a lifetime. It's a continuous thing. So to be an obedient follower of Jesus, like Paul is calling us to be here, is to go on a journey for all of our lives. It's staying on the path that, leads, that reaps holiness and eternal life that we were talking about. In other words, in order to become the people of faith that we were talking about at the beginning is made up of a lot of small decisions over the course of our lifetime. Unfortunately, it's not like the flick of the switch that I hoped for <laughs> when I was younger. So what are the things that we can do to be continually presenting ourselves to God as 
as slaves to him. What are, the, what are these habits of grace? Well, I thought it was always a safe place to start looking by looking at Jesus' life. There are a lot of things that he made time for in his life so that he was in constant conversation and communion with his father. And so that meant that he would be able to know his father's will and be able to follow it. There were things, loads of things, so prayer, worship, fasting, solitude, community, caring for the lost and the broken and the hurting, just to name a few. And these are the things that I'm I'm meaning when I say the words habits of grace, because they're the things that allow Jesus to walk in obedience with his father constantly. It allowed him to do it continuously. We aren't going to touch on them all today, you'll be pleased to know, purely for the sake of time. Um, So I've just chosen two of these that I think God's really placed on my heart. Solitude and prayer. So firstly, solitude. Um, I once did a personality test, and I came out as 100% extroverted. (laughs) I've quickly become some of your worst nightmare. (laughs) Um, So it's safe to say that I'm probably the least qualified person in the room to start talking to you about solitude. Um, But it's something that God's really been putting on my heart to try and practice more and more. Solitude was a really normal part of Jesus' life. In order to start his ministry, right after he was baptized... He was led by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And then again in Mark 6, we see his heart for solitude again. There's this really crazy moment where Jesus has just found out that his, one of his really, really great friends, John the Baptist, has been killed in a really hideous way. And the disciples, at the same time, have just come back from their first ever missions trip. Um, They were sent out in pairs to heal the sick and cast out demons and tell people about Jesus. So understandably, they've come back to Jesus absolutely buzzing to tell him about everything that happened. And what we see here is Jesus' response to them, to all of this emotion, all of this craziness, was to go away to a quiet place with them. Now, if you read the story, they also get interrupted feed the 5,000 before Jesus ends up going on his own. But that was his heart. (laughs) It's a bit complicated. Um, But his heart was to go away and spend time on his own with the Father. And solitude is really difficult in our world, in our culture. We live in a world that is bombarding us with noise and information. Um, It prioritizes productivity and, and activity over stillness or contemplation. But there's a real power in solitude. It allows us to hear ourselves and hear God. There have been times in my life where people have just asked me how I am, and it's actually felt really complicated to answer the question because I haven't had time enough to catch my breath and actually be able to answer how I'm doing because I don't really know. I've been too busy. Um, So it's often in the quietness that we find that out. And sometimes it's because of this quietness that we we avoid solitude. Um, It becomes really difficult to hide what we think about ourselves, what we think about God, what, what we feel about God in the silence. Um, and and we'll be, sometimes it's a little bit scary to know what we're going to find when everything else dies away. But Jesus wasn't scared of this. He brought all of himself into the presence of God. We see in that example where he goes up the hill and he is dealing with the grief of his friend and the joy of the disciples But we see it again in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, just before Jesus died. He brought all of himself and all of his emotions to the Father. And that was what allowed him to continually be in step with Jesus, with his Father, sorry. 
Henry Nguyen, Nguyen, sorry, Henry Nguyen is a theologian, and he says that solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. So it, I think that captures how significant it is to be spending time on our own with the Father. We need to be alone with him to be able to be obedient to him, to know what those small steps of faith are in front of us. We have to spend time with him. So that's solitude. And secondly, prayer. Um, often in those, in those moments of solitude, if you read the stories that I kind of touched on, we, get, we also get a little bit of a glimpse into Jesus' prayer life. And it's one thing to note that Jesus spent quite a lot of time in prayer, but potentially it's more important to look at how he prayed. He prayed in a different way. Um, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in response to the disciples asking him to teach them how to pray. And what we can miss there is that the disciples were Jewish boys. They knew how to pray. They'd actually been praying their whole lives. They'd been to synagogue. They'd literally been taught how to pray. But they didn't know how to pray like Jesus did. They had seen something about how Jesus prayed that was different. They saw the intimacy of his relationship with the Father, and they wanted more of that. I was talking um, to a friend at work recently who mentioned um, a talk they'd heard about prayer. And the speaker referred to spending time with God um, in prayer as a meal. And most of the time, the, meal, the meals that we have are un- unmemorable. It, we know that it's sustaining, and we know that they're good for us. But, oh, but normally, they're nothing overly special. Every now and again, we have a meal that's a bit like Marais, if you know. <laughs> they're delicious, memorable, and they completely blow out our expectations of what a meal can be. But the rest of the time, it's like jacket potato, beans, and cheese. They sustain us. They're good for us. <laughs> Some people really love jacket potato, beans, and cheese. <laughs> they're nutritious. They're good for you. But, but they're quite mundane. And, but over time, if you look back, it, you realize it's those meals that helped you get stronger and healthier and sustained you to where you are now. And you can't necessarily pinpoint a moment. This is sometimes how we, can, how we view prayer. We know that prayer and spending time with God is good for us, but we put it off if it doesn't feel special or we feel like he's far away. But the truth is, is that Jesus is always waiting and wanting to eat with us. He's always wanting to spend time with us and become, allow us to become more intimate with him. So all of that to say is that prayer is important for us to be able to continue submitting to God and knowing his will for our lives. Like solitude, unless we're spending time in prayer with Jesus, how do we know what the next step of faith is that he's asking us to take? So if we know that all of these things are good for us, how do we incorporate them into our lives? Well, I've got, because it's a classic talk, I've got three points. (laughs) I've got three things that we can do that will help us incorporate more of this into our lives. Um, The first is make it small. You may or may not have heard of this guy called David Brailsford. Sam, can I have his picture? Here he is. He looks quite intimidating there in black and white, doesn't he? (laughs) Um, Well, he was hired by the British cycling team. Um, You can see it on his his jacket there. Um, 
when things were looking really bad. He stepped into a job that you just don't want. The, the cycling team had won one gold medal in 95 years, and they were so bad that people wouldn't sell them bikes because they would ruin the reputation of the bikes. They were that bad. <laughs> um, but Brailsford, I mean, credit to him, he came in and he took the job, and he applied a th the theory of 1% marginal gains to the British cycling team. His idea was, is if you could improve lots of areas by just 1%, and you combined them all over time, then the overall impact would be really significant. It's the theory of a cumulative gain, if that means anything to you. <laughs> um, he began changing all sorts of normal things that you'd expect. Um, so aerodynamics of bikes, helmets. He did a lot about kind of feedback of your muscle temperature, lots of things like that. But he also started changing some things that were a bit random. All the athletes had mattresses that were tested to help them get the best night's sleep so that they could train harder. These mattresses were then transported around with the team wherever they went so that they could always get the best night's sleep. Now, that sounds quite great. Um, they also um, they painted the inside of the bus that transported the bikes white so that they could see all of the dust and that, so the dust wouldn't impact the bike's performance. They used hand sanitizer before it was cool um, so that they wouldn't get ill. They did all of these crazy things so that each area of the cyclist's life would be improved by 1%, so that over time, the impact would be big. And, man, did it work. Five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team went to the 20, 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, and they won 60% of the gold medals available. Later, in the Olympic Games in London, they set nine Olympic records and seven world records. So in 10 years the British cyclists won 178 world championships, 66 Olympic or Paralympic gold medals, and they won five Tour de France victories. If you don't know, the Tour de France is like the most grueling thing. Apparently, it's the hardest cycling thing race in the whole world. And they won five in 10 years after not having won one for 107 years. So this theory of marginal gains, it's got some... It's got some you need to pay attention. It's got some mileage to it. <laughs> The theory is based on the idea that it's so easy to overestimate the, the importance of one defining moment and underestimate the value of making small improvements on a daily basis. So a bit like when I was younger with Meshach, Shraj and Abednego, I overestimated the significance of the one moment in the furnace and underestimated all of the small decisions that they had made to get to that point. And that can be the same with our relationship with solitude and prayer and all of the other habits of grace. It's easy to think about solitude after a talk or a Christian conference or a time that we feel particularly fired up to spend time with Jesus. But then after one week, maybe two, maybe a month if you're doing really well, then the desire is gone and the habits of a busy life take over again. And none of this is bad, obviously, but if we're looking for sustained change, if we want those moments of faith, if we want to have a life like those heroes of faith that we talked about, then it's, it's the idea of sustained change that, that we need to apply to our own lives. And we can do this by applying the, the idea of 1% gains. So maybe for prayer, actually, if we start by just saying the Lord's Prayer once a day, every day, and see where that takes us. 
For solitude, it could be spending a few minutes in silence in the morning before looking at your phone, before the noise of the world comes in, spending just time with just you and Jesus. And we can see where that might take us over the course of a lifetime. So with some of this stuff, one of the barriers can be, what's the point, right? These things are really small, what's the point? If we, if, what, what difference does it make if we just pray for one minute extra a day or one person extra? Well, I found out in, the, in my research for this <laughs> that if you decided to get in a plane on the equator and you flew all around the earth, you'd aim, you want, you're aimed to land in the same place again. But if the pilot in charge of the plane was one degree off course on that flight, then you would land 500 miles off your target. You'd end up in an entirely different place in the world than you were aiming to get to. And that can be the same with these things, is that that 1% makes a really big difference. So making more time for prayer and solitude, it might not feel like a big deal in our daily lives, but it could be that 1% shift that makes a big difference over the course of a lifetime. So first one, make it small. Number two, make it fun. Um, Pete Gregg is um, a leader of a church um, down in Surrey, and he also leads the 24-7 prayer movement. And he did an interview recently about solitude. Um, And he described that he has a solitude day, aims to, about every six weeks. And he said that when he talks to people about this solitude day that he has in his diary, they're always bitterly disappointed by how unholy it sounds. He said that So this is what he described the day as. So I'll describe it to you. He said that there's a pub about two and a half hours walk away from his house. So he walks to the pub. He has a big meal. He might read a Christian book and journal for a little bit. He has a seasonally appropriate drink, whatever that might be. (laughs) And then he walks home with a full belly. And he said, all in all, he's been out for six hours and he's had generally a really lovely time. And that counts. That, that's as complicated it is as it is sometimes. Believe it or not, spending time on our own with Jesus doesn't have to be a punishment. It can be something that you'd like to do anyway. We just need to take Jesus along with us. And, it, and in fact, it makes it a lot easier to stick to if it's something fun, <laughs> if it's something you're going to look forward to. So maybe that's what we all need to do. Find a pub two and a half hours away. <laughs> if you find one, let me know. <laughs> um, So make it small, make it fun. And thirdly and finally, make it a habit. There is a great book called Atomic Atomic Habits um, that I'd recommend reading if you haven't heard of it. It's by a guy called James Clear. um, And he defines habits as the small decisions and actions that we perform every day. And he goes as far to say that what we repeatedly do i.e. what we spend time thinking about and doing each day, ultimately forms the person that we are, the things that we believe in, and the personality that we portray to the people around us. I found thinkers from all different areas of life, from behavior science to psychology to sport, loads of different areas, agree that your habits are one of the most important things about you. They make who you become and who you are. There are so many small things we do naturally without even thinking. You put your seatbelt on in the car. You might boil the kettle as soon as you walk into the kitchen. 
If you're a cow, you bite your fingers when you're thinking about anything. <laughs> so for good or for bad, we all have these habits. And they're repeated over a course of a lifetime. They shape who we are and who we become. I think habits have a bad rep. I don't really like the word habit, ironically. But when I was thinking about this, I realized that actually it's, it's habits that kept Michael Jordan being the best basketballer of his time, or Mozart being the musician that he was, because it's habits that we practice all the time that, that lead to big change. In Jeremiah, it says that our aim should, become, should be to become the one who knows and understands the Lord, he who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. So rather than, like Michael Jordan, our aim being to be the best basketballer, actually, Jeremiah is asked, saying that our aim should be the one who knows and understands the Lord. So I wonder if that's your experience of your habits. Do they reflect becoming the ones who know and understand the Lord more? And, and this links back to it being small as well. It's suggested that if you want to make a habit of flossing your teeth which I think I'm safe to say I need to, <laughs> I'm not very good at, then you should start by flossing just one tooth. And if you do more, then brilliant, but you should start just every day by committing to floss one tooth. And when that becomes second nature, then you add the other teeth, which baffled me and actually explained a lot. It explained why normally by the end of February, pretty much every year, I've already given up on the Bible in one year. Because it's a big habit to make and attempt to stick to. Normally, while trying to start a whole lot of other New Year habits as well. <laughs> because I'm a self-improver. <laughs> um, so we need, when we're thinking about these habits of wanting to become like the one who understands and knows the Lord, then we need to make them small enough to become habitual without thinking. And these can have a really powerful impact over time. And it's by incorporating more of these, more time for solitude and more time for prayer that I think that we can really reap the benefits over a long period of time. And we can become like those people of faith that we talked about at the beginning. Because actually, it's great news that we're not waiting for the, flick, the switch to flick. Because it means that we can all do more of this and know more of Jesus. He's already laid out the path of grace that leads to holiness. He's done the hard bit for us. We don't need to. So those are the things that I feel like God's been putting on my heart for us, is that by making really small 1% changes, making fun additions to our lives that we already want to do, but taking Jesus along with us, and forming really small habits in our lives of spending more time in prayer and solitude that we as a community, will be in a, in a really exciting place as we walk further down this line of knowing more of Jesus. And I'm excited to see what God does with us as we do that.